You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Beginning in the New Testament, we'll start in letter to the Colossians. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 18-25. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. And would you turn with me to 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel 25. We'll read verses 23 to 42. When Abigail saw David... She hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he, he, Nabal, is is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles Of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself, salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come down to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. 
And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insults I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. So, Father, we come again to your word to hear you speak, to believe what you tell us, to be comforted by what you tell us, to be confronted by what you tell us, that we might leave here believing and obeying all that you say. Um, so may your word bear fruit among us today, and may we be more faithful, um, more understanding, more wise as a result of these stories you tell us. In your name we pray, amen. Have you ever considered or wondered why God gave us stories? There's a wonderful book uh, outlining the theology of the Old Testament called He Gave Us Stories. that outlines for us um, at least a sense of what, what lay at the heart of God's purposes in giving us stories like these. Um, oftentimes we, in particularly the modern West, we like propositions. We like um, being told the truths that we're supposed to believe. We like being told the, well, actually, if we're honest, we don't like this part, but I uh, like being told very, very clearly, here's the things, the steps that you must obey. Um, but we don't always know what to do with stories. And yet, we're spending a lot of time in First Samuel, which is full of stories. And today, we have a particularly lengthy story um, that involves a foolish man, actually two foolish men, um, and uh, a wise and beautiful woman. And so I, I want to begin by kind of setting us up today before we look at the story to understand why God gives us stories. And, and this introduction kind of lays uh, at least a foundation for everything we've been doing for Samuel over the course of the last year, everything we're going to continue to do as we work our way through the rest of First and Second Samuel. But it's important to understand um, that, that stories illustrate for us, they lay out for us um, the, the reality that this is how God interacts in the world. Uh, this is how God redeems. This is how God saves. This is how God commands. Um, there, there's no other context. Like, the, the Christian faith is not um, a pie in the sky, kind of uh, get, your idea, get, get your head around a, a handful of theological ideas um, that you can kind of reflect on, but rather we believe and confess that the God um, who gave us this, this word, gave us this book, um, lives and acts and breathes and saves and commands and judges in history, in real stories, in the real unfolding of people's lives. That there is no other Christianity. There's not a Christianity that merely exists in your head. Christianity has to be lived out. We like to say that what you believe will always work itself out through your fingertips. All the way out. All the way down. And so God has given us stories, at least in one part, to show us how to think about 
um, truths and laws and commands and wisdom in the light of the, the actual unfolding of events and the interactions of real life people. It's, it's far too easy for us um, in our age to kind of paint everything in terms of black and white and everything in terms of um, these are the heroes and these are the villains. What we actually see in this text today is a way, way more complex scenario, a way more complex unfolding of what God is actually up to in the world and how God accomplishes his purposes. It's not that right and wrong isn't black and white. It's just the way that those things get worked out on the ground in the real lives of real people isn't always so clear cut. Um, Throughout Samuel, David tends to be the hero. He's um, he, he, throughout the whole of Scripture, tends to be the hero. He's the guy that everyone looks back to um, as the, the kind of the prime example, the prime kind of foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus the King who, who reigns over all things. And yet what we find in this story is David behaving very, very foolishly. Um, uh, we also have things like commands given to us, even in the text that we read earlier from Colossians chapter 3. Where wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. That God has given husbands as head, as leaders in their families. And yet here we have a, a woman who's held up as a, as a beautiful example to us who decidedly doesn't submit to her husband. And so how these things work themselves out in the course of the unfolding of what God is actually up to in the world is usually far more complex um, than, than we realize. And so we actually need stories to begin to understand how do we apply and, and, and live out and obey all that God has commanded of us. So, here we have a story. We have a cautionary tale at the heart of this story. A cautionary, um, cautionary tale um, about a man essentially named Idiot. Um, fool be kind of a less harsh term, but let's just go with Idiot. His name is Idiot. Um, There's not much subtle about his name here in the story. Um, So what I want us to do is we're going to first just make some observations about how this story unfolds. um, And then then we're going to consider some principles to apply or to obey um, as we think about this story and seek to believe and obey all that God has commanded us. Um, first thing to keep in mind, kind of always running in the background of First and Second Samuel, um, are three things. They're always there. They're almost, they, they show up in almost every single story, and one of them is rather pronounced in this story. But if you can keep those three things in mind every time you go back to First and Second Samuel, um, it will help you to kind of uh, clue into why the author is doing some of the things that he's doing as he unfolds this history for us. First, always running in the background, is the story of Jacob, Esau, and Laban. Um, if you'll know the story of Jacob, Esau, and Laban, um, Jacob, uh, David and Jacob are, are, are very much kind of parallel narratives in, um, in this story. So you have David in First and Second Samuel paralleling many, many, many of the elements of Jacob's own story from the book of Genesis. So Jacob has to flee from his father's house. David has to flee from his adopted father's house. Um, Jacob is mistreated. Um, David is mistreated by almost everyone. Um, And here you have Nabal. Uh, Nabal in Hebrew and in English, spelled backwards, is Laban. 
Again, not a whole lot of subtlety in this story. Um, the author is trying to shout at you, pay attention to Genesis. Everything that's going on there is some of what's unfolding here. So that's the first kind of file in your brain to always have open as, you begin, as you're reading First and Second Samuel. Second, another theme that's always running in the background is the relationship between fathers and sons and adopted sons and unfaithful sons and faithful adopted sons and unfaithful fathers. So the relationship between fathers and sons and the back and forth that kind of unfolds um, over the course of redemptive history between um, Fathers who seem good but are maybe unfaithful fathers to their children, how that then um, produces certain kind of outcomes with children, um, and, and the reverse, like how you see um, God replacing unfaithful sons with faithful sons. Um, that is a, a second file to kind of always have open, it's always generally showing up um, in these stories. The third thing is always the contrast, um, and it's very pronounced between the story of Saul and the story of David. The contrast between how do people respond when confronted with righteousness. That is a fundamental theme. But what you're going to find out as you continue to walk through the story of David is that he was not a perfect man. He is compulsive in our text today and, and murderously compulsive in our text today. Um, there, there are all kinds of foreshadowings going on in the text to tell us um, that, that some of what's going on with Saul is also going on with David. There, there's something universal to their experience. There's something universal to all of our experiences. The difference between Saul and David is not one is perfectly righteous and always does the right thing and one is wicked and sinful and always does the wrong thing. It's that both of them respond differently when confronted with their sin. Saul generally making excuses, sometimes repenting kind of for a season and then returning back to his sin. David, when confronted with his sin, repents, owns his sin which tells us something about the very essence of Christianity that we'll come back to at the end of our text. So with those three files kind of always running in the background, this text opens, chapter 25, opens with announcing Samuel's death. Samuel had two adopted sons in the narrative, um, and the two adopted sons are Saul and David. And what you're going to see is... Um, it's not a happenstance that chapter 25 and what happens with David in this text and what is going to happen with Saul in chapter 26, which we'll get to in two weeks, that those two things happen immediately following the death of the father figure in this story. David here is going to almost become a Saul. Saul in chapter 26 is going to go back to his old ways, back to his a murderous intent after what appeared to be so hopeful in chapter 24. And so Samuel dies to open this story, and immediately we're given a story about David. David's still living in the wilderness while he's there. Um, he's living in proximity to a man named Nabal. Nabal is extremely wealthy. Um, he's, uh, there's language used throughout this text to compare him to a king. Um, he's meant to be functioning as a Saul figure, 
uh, so that um, what you're actually getting in chapters 24, 25, 26 is uh, you're, you're watching David's interactions, kind of David's of movements and, and, and how he responds to um, Saul figures in his life. In chapters 20, chapter 24, he did great. Um, he sinned by cutting the robe. He acknowledged his sin. He confessed his sin, and he honored Saul. Chapter 25, he, he ends up doing okay, um, but he starts out by doing really, really poorly. Um, it seems like it's headed in a very poor direction. In chapter 26, he's going to learn from this lesson and again, behave honorably or righteously in the sight of God. So, so at the heart of these three chapters is David's interactions with a hostile king. Um, here, uh, the king is not Saul. The king is Nabal. Um, Nabal's name means fool or foolish one or idiot. Um, and uh, there's a really good chance um, that's probably not the name his mother gave him. Um, probably like his nickname. Uh, because... Well, if you're a mom and you're about to have a baby, it's just, there's some bad names, right? There's some really bad names. I've heard incredibly bad names, none of which I would tell the parents that that was a bad name. Um, so you'll never know if I think your name that you've chosen for your child is a bad name or a good name. Um, but what I will tell you is you shouldn't name your kid idiot, uh, ever. Um, yeah, that shouldn't be, like, you have the baby and then you go, like, you know what a great name for this child is, is fool. Total fool, big fool, or little fool. Shouldn't do that. Um, it might be accurate, it might not be accurate, but, but you should not name um, your child that. So there's a good chance this is a nickname um, that was given, uh, but that's the name the text gives us is um, Nabal. Um, Nabal, um, this text does not spell out the full measure of his folly, what makes him completely a fool, but it does focus our attention on a handful of things in this text, um, which don't kind of fully fill out the definition of what a fool is and a fool does, but there are definite, clear, um, concrete things we can take away from the text which show us if you're living this way, you're living foolishly. Um, and, and so David, uh, Nabal, is, is, it's the time for shearing the sheep. Um, time for shearing the sheep is a season of feasting in ancient Israel. Um, this would have been a prime time for Nabal to show and practice hospitality, um, to practice generosity. Um, and so David sends word um, saying, hey, we, no harm has come to your sheep. Your, your men have been protected. And it's important to know this isn't some sort of protection racket um, like some of you run, I know. Uh, where he's like asking for money in return for not robbing him. Um, it, the, the text tells us later David had actually um, was out there defending uh, Nabal's uh, men, defending his sheep, defending his flock um, from bandits, from thieves, from uh, being harmed. Um, so it was actually really, really good for uh, Nabal um, and his family that David was out there. So David comes, he presents himself very, very humbly, um, I, actually speaking to Nabal as a father, you get echoes here of what goes on in chapter 24 when David calls upon Saul as his father and he asks Nabal um, not for an abundance of things. He says, hey, whatever you have at hand, we could use some supplies, we could use some food, um, we could use some help. Nabal's response to David is to insult him. Listen to verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? So you have right there a ref, uh, kind of a, a rebuttal um, to David's warmth, to David's uh, kind of relational warmth, acknowledging Nabal's superiority, his, his, his place 
um, over David. He just rebuts it and says, I don't even know who this David is. He's definitely not my son. He's some son of Jesse. Then he goes further. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. So he now calls into question there, not calls into question, but actually explicitly denies um, David's uh, loyalties. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? It's interesting, in the Hebrew there, he says um, some word of, some version of I, me, mine, eight times in one verse. Um, that's going to be your first clue into what folly looks like. Um, folly always thinks of the self. Folly is always concerned about me, about how I'm interpreted, about how I'm seen, about how I'm understood, about how everyone else is um, out to get me, or how everyone else is um, honoring me or considering me, and does everything in that kind of fundamental orientation. And so um, the primary orientation the text gives us for Nabal, the fool, is he is utterly selfish, utterly concerned with himself, utterly concerned with what belongs to him. So David gets this word, and then David, in, in verse 13, after hearing this, calls all men to strap on their swords. David also straps on his sword, and he takes 400 men, leaving 200 behind, to go and kill Nabal and all of Nabal's men. The King James Version is a far better translation in this text, but I'll leave it to you to go look up and how it defines what a man is in this text. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to just read the King James just so we could say it, but I'm going to keep going here. My wife is pleading with me with her eyes to not go there. So, let's keep going. Um, he's going to go and kill all of these men. Um, Nabal, uh, another indication that he's a fool, is the men who are following him. One of them, get, one of them leaves Nabal's side, kind of knows what's going on, knows uh, that Nabal is an idiot, and goes to Abigail. In other words, he knows Nabal is worthless. He's not going to listen to any counsel. He doesn't even know how stupid uh, what he's done is. And so uh, one of these men goes to Abigail, tells her what's, what's happened. Um, Abigail then makes haste, comes, uh, brings gifts. Here you, again, you have another echo of the story of Jacob. Um, although Abigail now is cast in the role of Jacob, um, as Jacob comes and returns to his brother Esau, he sends gifts uh, to kind of put down wrath. So Abigail makes haste um, to appear before David with um, these gifts. When she comes, um, you'll notice she does a handful of things here that are actually remarkable. Um, first, she takes responsibility for her husband's foolishness. She says, I, I'm, <laughs> in other words, I'm the, one that has to, I'm the one that's supposed to deal with outsiders. We know he's worthless, um, and so we don't want him dealing with outsiders. So I should have, I'm, I apologize. Um, I should have been the one to talk to you. I should have found out this was going on. Um, she takes responsibility for the sins of her husband. Um, second, she, uh, she does two things here that we're going to have to work out a little bit. Um, first... She condemns her husband, saying that, that God is going to bring judgment against her husband. And two, in a very subtle way, brings conviction to David for his potential sin that he'd set out to do um, right in front of her. So she notice both of these things. She says, Nabal has committed a sin. He's foolish. He's worthless. Nobody listens to him. 
I should, have, I should have gotten ahead of this thing. I apologize. And two, he's sinned against you. Sorry. And, and he's sinned against you. He's done this great evil against you. And then two, subtly in that is embedded in an indictment of David about to go do something foolish and wicked. Then she makes it explicit and says, don't do this. Don't you go and take vengeance for yourself. She, she's wise. The text tells us she's wise and beautiful um, and says, don't go do this thing because you will come to your throne. You will rule and you don't want to do that with blood guilt. You don't want to do that with this on your conscience. You don't want to do this knowing that you took vengeance in your own hands and killed Nabal and his men. It's important too in this text and all through the scriptures Vengeance is never held up as sin, but taking vengeance for yourself is always held up as sin. It's an important, just little side observation to go here. Vengeance, it does not say vengeance is bad, it says vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So, David relents, acknowledges his sin, Abigail goes back. When she gets back, her husband is very, very drunk, another sign of his folly, feasting like a king. On the next morning, he wakes up after the wine has all gone out of him. It's an interesting play on words in the Hebrew there. Um, the, the word for wineskin is Laban, um, or, yeah, Laban, um, and uh, the word for Nabal, there's a, there's a, it's just two different vowel, vowel pointings, so it's, um, it, it shows up as just kind of a reverse of Nabal's name. Um, and so you have here again uh, a picture of what a foolish man or a foolish husband looks like. He's an empty wineskin. He, he has nothing inside of him. She tells him what's unfolded. And his heart is, the, the, the language here is one of fear. He realizes how close he came to death, how close he came to destroying his own household. And then 10 days later, and the text is very explicit, the Lord struck Nabal And he died. Again, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Not David's and not yours. David hears Nabal has died. And then he sends for um, Abigail, um, sends for her to become his wife. And there's the story. So we need to think about a couple of observations from the text. First, um, the nature of, of Nabal's um, wickedness, the, the nature of Nabal's folly. Um, he is clearly in this text compared to Laban from Genesis. Um, Laban, if you'll remember, is the man who mistreated Jacob, mistreated one of his best servants. Um, there's also parallels there. David takes care of Nabal's, um, his, his sheep and his, uh, his men. Um, Jacob in Genesis takes care of Laban's sheep and Laban's men. Um, and both Laban, Laban and Nabal, there's so many, it's just back and forth, um, Laban and Nabal, uh, both of them mistreat the, the men who are serving them gallantly. Um, second, there's a complete focus on the self. We already talked about the eight times that he says, I, me, mine. Um, it, it's a man who's just glutting himself on the wealth that God has provided and not using that wealth um, to bless and to serve others. Um, even to, to serve others that would further protect him and further uh, expand his wealth. There's a complete and utter focus on himself. Second, um, the men that are following him, 
um, know that he's not a person to talk to, to listen to reason. He's not the smart one in this married couple of Nabal and Abigail. Um, a quick way to check and see if you're a fool um, is does somebody, do people have to work around you in your job? If somebody wants a reasonable answer, if somebody wants to think clearly about an issue, um, do they come to you or do they need to work around you to someone else? Um, and likewise, in your marriage, uh, do the kids um, have to go somewhere else, have to go to your wife or have to go to your husband um, to get a reasonable answer? Um, or are they just, uh, uh, or do they, can they come to you and work out what they want? I'm not talking here, kids, about um, the game that sometimes gets played, never in our family, obviously, um, but in other families at times where you know dad is more prone to say yes to this and mom is more prone to say yes to this. And so you get a whole chart going on um, if we're asking for snow cones, we go to dad. If we're asking for, I don't know what moms say yes to, but something else that you go to moms for. Sorry, <laughs> that, was, that was bad. Um, I'm not talking about that sort of situation. I'm talking about... Um, uh, mom and dad, are, are you reasonable people that can give reasonable answers um, that your children know that you can come to you? Do, you, do people who work for you know they can come to you? Um, or is there such a focus on the self, such a focus um, when your kids are coming to you on what you're doing, what you're busy with, what you're trying to do, that you go, no, go talk to mom? Oftentimes that's a whole other thing. Um, you know you're not going to be reasonable, so you send them away. Um, uh, so, so there is folly here. With Nabal, there's folly with Laban in Genesis as well. And now what to do with Abigail. Um, It's important to note that this text feels like it's in conflict with Colossians 3. The text we read right before this. It was on purpose that we read Colossians 3. Here's this picture in, uh, in the New Testament of what marriage is meant to be. A husband um, who leads his family, leads his wife, um, who leads as Christ leads the church, who bears that kind of authority in the home. And here's a wife commanded in Colossians 3 to submit to her husband. Um, and yet we come to 1 Samuel 25, and here's a woman that there, there's not a hint in the text that she's to be indicted, that she's done anything wrong in any of this, and she's clearly not doing what her husband wants. So what are we to make of Abigail? She's wise. She considers the whole situation, particularly in reference to the word and the promises of God. Very, very important. Two, she, she calls men in her life, both, of the, both her future husband and her current husband. She calls them to obey and honor the Lord. And she goes out of her way even to take responsibility for a husband who will not honor the Lord but stubbornly is in rebellion against the Lord to go and honor the Lord. So here's a wife who loves above all things God, his word, and his promises. And you see a woman like that in conflict with A husband who does not love the word of God and does not love the promises of God and is not acknowledging those promises or just baseline wisdom with regards to a man who could kill him. He's planning on killing him. So all of this matters as we think about three principles to apply. First, 
the root of folly. Beware of men who demand submission but will not acknowledge any authority over them. One of the fundamental problems with Nabal in this is at this time everybody knows um, David has, it's, he's going to be the next king. This is um, becoming increasingly public knowledge um, throughout Israel. Here's a man, because he doesn't have to in this moment, because he's completely foolish, completely bent in on the self, he refuses to acknowledge the, the potential authority in, in David. And never mind the authority of the sword, the authority that, um, of what David has done for him, the authority uh, that, that God has wrought for his good through David and through David's men. Um, he just refuses to acknowledge authority outside of himself. He feasts like a king, he drinks like a king, and he thinks like, a, like he is the king. And yet the man who is the promised king, the man who's been anointed to become king, um, the, the man who, would, who actually will wield all the authority of God as king, has come to him and very humbly asked for some help. And Nabal insults him, grounding that insult in his own authority and saying, I don't even know who David is. Who is this David, the son of Jesse? Why should I give what I have to him? So first point of application, um, maybe particularly to the single women in the room. If you meet a man and he eats like a king and he drinks like a king, maybe he's great in so many ways. But you see in him a refusal to acknowledge any actual authority outside of himself. He's resistant to authority from the government. He's resistant to authority in the church. He's resistant to the authority of his parents. You should go away. You should not entertain that relationship. Um, the root of folly is, is ultimately not just how smart you are. But wisdom begins with, where does it begin in Proverbs? With the fear of the Lord. All wisdom Therefore, begins with the acknowledgement of the ultimate supreme authority of God over all things. Therefore, the root of all foolishness, the root of all folly, is a refusal to acknowledge authority over oneself. So do not be a Nabal. Confess the authority of God and his authority over all things and live in submission to his authority and the ways that that authority gets expressed. Second, the measure of a good woman. Um, the, the Bible is very, very clear on two things. One, a husband really does have authority in his marriage. And two, that authority is never absolute. Let me say that again. A husband really does have authority in his family, and in his marriage, and in his home. And two, that authority is never absolute. And that's not just true in marriages. It's true with political authority. It's true with familial authority. It's true with church authority. God establishes real authorities. They have real realms over which they have authority to exercise. Um, and they are to exercise it, acknowledging the authority of God over them. And, and acknowledging the word of God and believing the word of God and applying the word of God in whatever realm they're in. For husbands, that's the household. 
The reality is, is that you have husbands who live in rebellion to the word of God. They live in rebellion to the goodness of God. They live in rebellion to the authority and the, the promises of God. Therefore, their authority is, it's very important to know their authority is not absolute. There are times when faithfulness to God requires you to go against the authorities that God has placed over you. Let me say that again. There are times when loyalty to God, faith in God, trusting in God's word requires you to rebel against, to disobey, subvert the authorities that God himself has placed over you. I heard this week a story um, in another city, in another church, of a woman who was being abused by a harsh and cruel husband. She'd gotten into her mind that she needed to stay in that marriage and stay in that harmful situation to her and her children Because she believed Colossians 3. Wives should submit to their husbands. But that man was subverting the rule of God, the authority of God. He was in active rebellion against the commands of God in how he was treating his wife and his kids. Obedience to God required that woman to rebel against the authority that was in rebellion against God. This has political ramifications, it has ecclesial or church ramifications, and it absolutely has ramifications for marriage. Our highest allegiance belongs to Jesus. We obey Christ. Now, I'm not talking about what temperature you set the thermostat in your house on. There's a My wife joyfully submits to my desires to run the AC excessively. But when the authority that God has placed over you begins to wield that authority in an ungodly way, begins to wield that authority in disobedience to the word of God, you have an obligation to God not to obey. It's the second point of application. And third... I want us to see in this text how God saves his people, how God keeps his promises. Don't miss the overall thrust of this story. This story is fundamentally not about Nabal. It's not even really about Abigail, though um, there's a lot of time spent to to, to exemplify Abigail's faithfulness in this text. This text is about David, and it's contrasting for us chapter 24, 25, and where we'll get to in 26, um, David's father in the Lord has just died, Samuel. Um, David's response to that death is to do the exact opposite thing than what he did in chapter 24. In chapter 24, he didn't take vengeance for himself. He didn't try to seize control. He didn't try to take the promises of God. And and he didn't lash out against the man trying to kill him and his men. Instead, he submitted. Instead, he acknowledged the authority of God. Instead, he called God to witness between, um, um, between Saul and David. Here, God never enters the picture for David. He's insulted. He's mistreated, 
So he grabs 400 men and swords and goes to kill every man. And the glory of this text is that God sends Abigail to intervene. God sends a wise, crafty, beautiful woman to intervene and to call David, to to give David pause for just a moment to let David see what David's actually up to, what David's actually doing, to see it in the right light. Sometimes we get so caught up in um, whatever, uh, whatever um, whatever kind of thinking is driving our actions, driving our attitudes, driving our behaviors. And what we need in that moment is some sort of intervention, somebody to stop us on the, on the road to perdition, to stop us and say, here's what you're about to do. Please don't do this. It's going to destroy you. And God, in his kindness and in his mercy and in his absolute resolve to keep his promises, sends Abigail to be precisely that, to shine a light on David's, just on the the verge of about to happen, to shine a light on it so that David can see it for what it is. David calls it blood guilt, murder, something that would hang on him the rest of his life. And he responds. As David is the prime example throughout First and Second Samuel of how the people of God respond. It's not that you and I never do things that are worthy of guilt or shame or condemnation. It's that when God in his mercy intervenes, perhaps through a wise and beautiful wife, Perhaps through a sermon. Perhaps through a marvelous question, well-timed or ill-timed, depending on your perspective, from a son or a daughter. The, The response to seeing what you're doing in the light of God's wisdom and righteousness is to stop. It's to repent. It's to confess faith in God. This is, by the way, what it means to be a Christian. We inherit the promises of God. We trust the promises of God. We love the words of God. Yes. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but please, please don't get in your head the idea that Christianity is me- merely kind of some moral code. It is a people who have seen in the light of God's words their own sin And rather than continuing in that sin, continuing under their own authority, they stop and they repent of that sin and they give thanks to God. This is the foundation of what Christianity is. A people who hear the word of God, whose lives are examined by the word of God, who acknowledge their sin, who repent of their sin, and trust in their Lord and their King. 
Let's pray and prepare for communion.